Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here, back in Austin, Texas, after a month of speaking and playing music and painting around the glorious continent of Australia. With slightly more planetary perspective, I am delighted to present you today's conversation with J.F. Martell, author of Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, as well as a superb three-part essay called Reality is Analog on the Metapsychosis Journal website. We'll get into some of each of these in today's conversation. Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice is one of my favorite books. It is right up there with Alex Gray's The Mission of Art in books that truly activated and inspired me as an artist that empowered and enthused me, that got me thinking about my work in new ways and challenged me to rise to the moral occasion of the responsibility of being an artist, of being an open window to those transcendental dimensions of our lives that art discloses to us. The beauty of it is that good art rests as much in the eye of the beholder as anything. Good art is as much about the process of interpreting something, because as we all know, children of the age of the remix, art is about the repurposing, the exaptation of that which is already there. It's about making use of the resources at hand and using them to see through the media to see through the components, to see through the content, to that symbolic depth, the resonance of the infinite behind the world of appearances. For those of you who do not know, this podcast is a labor of love supported by my subscribers at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. For the cost of a cup of coffee every month, you can support this podcast and all of the other writing and music and art that I produce for the benefit of all beings inspired by people like J.F. Martell. For those of you interested in the ancient past and the distant future and the increasingly metamorphic nature of our age, you can go check out our Facebook group also. It's a fine way to stay in touch. Reach me directly if you want. Suggest guests. Share your reading list. All good things. Anyway, I hope you're staying warm or cool out there, depending on the season. And here we go. Welcome to Future Fossils Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Garfield. We're here with J.F. Martell for a second conversation, the first of which disappeared into that place where the left sock goes and you're bound to end up if you're a, a little boy in the 1980s riding around at night on a bicycle. That's right, the upside down, which I bring up because. J.F. Martell has just, in addition to writing the incredible book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, 
He has also just written a lovely 12,000 word essay. That's three parts. It actually goes really fast, folks. I don't be daunted on Stranger Things, the uh, Netflix special that has been sweeping, sweeping pop culture and uh, just made it into Rolling Stone. Actually, there's a weird connection between Austin, Texas and and the uh, the band that made the title credits soundtrack for that film. But at any rate, rather than hearing me blather incessantly about context, let's get into the, the meat of it and uh, welcome this fabulous person, JF. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks, uh, my, Michael. It's, it's awesome to be doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you think so. Yeah. Because... Lord knows that uh, there's that tension in between having a show that's all about communicating to the future and then also that communication being in large part so much about what cannot be communicated, what can't be captured yeah. and conveyed digitally to the unborn generations. Yes. So what's so what's been on your mind lately, good man? Um I've been going through some, 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 a kind of turn in my thoughts, actually. Like, it's funny recently. I've been, I've been getting into Plato again, which, which was, I didn't think would ever happen, but I've been thinking about universals and archetypes and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that's going, going too deep too fast, but that's actually what's going on right now, which is (laughs) just answering your question. But, uh, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been thinking a lot. Uh, There's this, this, uh, this amazing musicologist scholar. His name is Phil Ford. He's at, uh, the University of Indiana and is it Bloomington or Bloomingville? I keep forgetting. Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington, Indiana. And he, uh, he and I have become, um, fast friends and we've been, uh, jamming out ideas and we've been hitting some pretty cool stuff recently. So I've been, I've been doing a lot of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, thinking about metaphysics and philosophy and how it relates to ethics and politics and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been thinking about recently. So I'm wondering how, how, how my recent, you know, kind of, tendencies are going to influence what i'm going to say i really don't know what i'm going to say anymore so that's kind of exciting the well there you go that's that's very much uh in line with that notion that the shape of the mandelbrot set cannot be scried by looking at its algorithm right that there's that that sense in which we have these these great ideas and and these transformational shifts in perspective but that in, until you actually enact them, until you actually live them out, it's really hard to say what kind of an influence they will have on us. But I will say that your work, uh, since we spent it, it, like an entire hour dis- discussing in depth your book and that conversation is, is now an invisible substrate, the, yeah. the, the mulch for this one, that, that folks, this book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, which contrasts artifice and art, and this notion of art being made to achieve a particular behavioral goal, to, to incite a person to do something, versus art that stands on its own as, as a, uh, an invitation 
into a direct encounter with the ineffable mystery behind apparent phenomena. Mm-hmm. But this book, this book really changed the way that I, I relate to the implicate order or, you know, the, the information patterning the world of apparent form. And I remember that your, uh, stance in our last conversation was that you, uh, in spite of all of this, this effort that you make in your book to differentiate between signs and symbols and this notion that the symbol is something that is, that is webbed underground connected to all of these other archetypes that in spite of this, that you said that you're not a Platonist, that you don't, that, and I remember at the end of the call that, you know, you, you expressing some surprise that I had extracted such like a, an idealist perspective yeah. from your work. So it's funny that you're coming around to this now. And I'm curious to know where, like, what's, what all is going on in that for you? Well, I'm still, I'm not a Platonist. I think Plato would have been, you know how Jung said, I'm glad I'm Jung and not a Jungian. I think Plato would have said, I'm glad I'm Plato and not a, a Platonist. And I'm even, okay. he would have said, I'm even happier. I'm not a Neoplatonist. But like, <laughs> but I think that, I think there's something to be said for, um, uh, reality having a structure. And I think that's, that's kind of what reclaiming art's all about. Um, there's a structure to reality, but that structure is not rational. So even to call it a structure is already to talk in terms of, in, in symbols. So there is a certain patterning to life that exceeds the conceptual apparatus we design as a society to navigate our way through reality. So art is kind of a way to get beyond that apparatus, beyond that conceptual overlay or that kind of dome we live under, and to get to that substructure, that structure of the real that is uh, what Jung called archetypal. And art is a way of connecting with that and so of of uh, drawing out a kind of deeper logic that um, just a, a purely ideological or conventional approach wouldn't allow us to reach, you know. So in that sense, I'm a Platonist, but um, I think this, these are like imminent platonics in the sense that we're talking, we're not talking about transcendental rational forms that are for, that are achievable through rational uh, dialectics like in plato but we're talking about primordial deep sub-rational forms that are only approachable through a kind of dionysiac engagement at the level of symbols so we're talking about the realm of like poetry madness um uh excess uh experimentation exploration you know that sort of thing so and that's what gives us the real that's what gets gives us um, that's what allows art to become a kind of prophetic tool, you know? So ultimately art does have a function and it's to, to allow us to better navigate the infinite chaos that is reality, <laughs> you know? So, so is that like, uh, that's suggesting that art is in fact, uh, what would that be like hyper practical or supra practical that it, that yeah. it does actually, it is actually, and this is the, this is the funny thing. Um, I'm curious to know where, how, you know, how this sits with you. I had this thought about Occam's razor, this heuristic or principle in the sciences that the simplest explanation is the one that you should default to, that it's not necessarily always right, but that if you want to, you want to 
established probability, then it's pretty likely that it's it's going to be this the simple one versus the convoluted theory that that ends up being correct, which I think is funny because and this is where it connects to to this notion of the the practicality or functionality of art, which is that Occam's razor uh, seems to contradict the what cosmologists spend most of their time doing, which is trying to determine or articulate a a cosmology in which the world is one way and not another way. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the simplest explanation would be that the world is always, but that doesn't sit with the rationality, that hyper-rationality is that the simplest equation is the one that doesn't have to like assume all of these other possibilities simply in order to negate them. Yeah. And that, that in reality, the simplest, the simplest uh, version of reality is the one in which all of these other things that we assume to be impossible or can't even imagine are also real. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. And I mean, you you can see where Occam's razor leads you to sooner or later when you look at particle physics. I mean, they've applied Occam's razor all the way through and look at how convoluted and insane the theories have become. You know, like (laughs) the problem is that you, 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 you use it and then these paradoxes come up and then you need to resolve these paradoxes and you need to resolve these problems. And there's always more and more problems. So the theories become more and more convoluted in the name of remaining simple. You know, I'm not an expert (laughs) in in theoretical physics, but it, it certainly looks like it's, 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 it's looking pretty much as mythic as any, any mythological system that everyone's, anyone's ever come up with. So yeah, I think that. In a sense, the principle of, of parsimony, which was, is what you're talking about there, the mm-hmm. Occam's razor, so the most parsimonious explanation is more, most likely to be true, is predicated on, a, on a, a rationalistic notion of the nature of reality. But of course, uh, chances that reality has a rational structure through and through, it's kind of 50-50. It can or it <laughs> may or may not. You don't know. It, it doesn't need to. It doesn't, it's not beholden to be rational. It could be irrational i mean there's plenty of irrational stuff happening in life all the time and uh it seems to me that the fundamental axioms of any type of thought system including modern materialism is the axioms if you question them you end up in a place of paradox so it seems to me like the nature of the real i mean i i think we can understand the nature of reality and i think we understand the nature of reality the moment we admit that we don't know it and we understand the nature of reality the moment we admit we can't know it and that in itself becomes a kind of objective objective uh, notion or objective fact that we know about the real is that we do not know what is possible, what it's capable of, what it could throw at us next that would um, make us question even our most fundamental assumptions, right? So art, I think, that I call that radical mystery in the book, art's always approaching things from that point of view, that things are hanging, things are contingent, things are just, nothing can be... F- for sure, nothing's taken for granted. In order to make a great work of art, you have to place everything on a level. You don't go, okay, I'm going to make a work of art. Uh, I happen to be a Roman Catholic. So Roman Catholics are going to be really, really cool in my book. And everybody else is going to be a dick. And I'm going to show that Catholicism <laughs> is the best with my novel. I mean, that's how you create kind of didactic, boring, lame works of art. Whereas a good, like, for example, Dostoevsky, who's a fervent Christian, writes 
books that are have a deep Christianity to them, but that Christianity is on a level with all the other forces in the book. So everything becomes aesthetic in the sense that everything's put on the same plane so that nothing's taken, nothing, no, no cards left out of the pack. Everything's out there on the table and you're, you're kind of looking at the world through this purely aesthetic lens, which allows you to see how things are constructed, how things arise and how things fall. And it allows you to see how every, every concept kind of contains its own opposite or it casts its own shadow. And allows allows you to look at your world in a in a from, from almost from an outside perspective, you know. So that's a difference between a sign and a symbol. A sign is a a, a kind of a significator that contains its own meaning. That you know, it's it it doesn't it points to one thing, and that's unquestioned. The signified and the signifier are tied together. Whereas a symbol is a signifier that points to a multitude of things or that opens up a whole area of thought or that, that moves you into a zone where you're forced to think or forced to feel. And um, it pushes you outside of the, uh, the comfortable assumptions that make up kind of a, an ideological paradigm. Mm. You just had this, uh, so it, what you just said that in everything casting its own shadow, it's an interesting tweak on the notion that like good and evil would be the North and South pole of a magnet. Yeah. Yeah. And instead we have like, I've been, I've been fascinated about this alternate telling of the story of Lucifer, you know, because in the, in most of the Abrahamic diaspora, we have this account that this guy wanted to, you know, make creation great again, that it was this, (laughs) it was this thing of a a rebellious despotic type figure but then in the azidi people and like some of these other like kind of persian area types have this story of they call it azazel the first angel mm-hmm. and they say you know azazel was uh so devoted to god that he couldn't turn and face human beings when ordered to to worship this creation and the uh the azidi people regard this as the greatest act of devotion or the greatest act of faith so it, it it's weird that like the thought like in an emanationist view you have the godhead and then out of that godhead emerges the angelic orders and then these other lower orders but in this notion and it's, I guess this is the, the, the point. This is sort of in discussing the imminent part of this that this take or this angle suggests that the God that would demonize his first and most faithful creation is the shadow of that demiurge, actually. That it's like there's, I don't, I don't know if we can actually like place them in that sense as like, ontological equals like if we can say you know that 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 sort of rebalances the whole uh god devil polarity but it's just fascinating to me to think that you know to open a portal or a wormhole into the the stranger things theorizing that you've done that that it's not that the the underworld or the the upside down is so much an emanation or projection of us as it is that we're we we might equally be an emanation or projection of it that yeah. we're the shadow world also and that they or that they they cast each other as shadows that it's not that there isn't some like ultimate yeah reality there i don't know uh, i i like that 
I, I think that's kind of like um, in the Old Testament, uh, if you just get rid of what we like, everything that floats around the Old Testament, you just kind of read it. The devil is not portrayed as evil at all. He's portrayed as an enemy, but he's not portrayed as, um, it, you know, in the book of Job, I mean, the devil and God are chilling out talking at the beginning. And the devil says, I bet you that I can make, you know, Job turn against you. And God says, okay, you're on. Let's see what you can do. There's this, this, and, you know, and, and Jung, in answer to Job, writes at length about Christ and, and Satan as brothers, right? As equals. Mm. So that you have God, which is the kind of what what includes all the possible oppositions, all the opposites, the pure imminence of of reality, and then you have within that you have opposition that that, that emanates from it, and then you have Christ and the devil, and they're even in a way or equal. So that that type of um, the reciprocity of good and evil that it goes deep, 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 and I think it goes right to that symbolic subrational structure that I was rambling on about earlier but yeah in in stranger things what i like about stranger things is the ambiguities the moral ambiguities of that world from the start and what i like about it is that it's not about that the show's not about that it's just these things just come up you know like uh the upside down is basically just a dark reflection of the town so and um, there's there's a, a weird complicity between the character of Eleven and and the creature, and uh, so those things invite uh, a, a critical engagement that's that's at that level, at the level of symbols and at the level of of kind of wild interpretation. It, it, it invites that because it's an actual great work of art, I believe. It doesn't contain its own interpretation, which is what I define as artifice in the book. I mean, artifice is just a, an aesthetic product that contains its own interpretation. And a work of art is an aesthetic product that invites you, that forces you to interpret. Because it's presenting you with stuff that's innately paradoxical or innately ambiguous, ontologically strange in the language of the essay. So, like... So yeah, so so that's what I that's what I liked about about Stranger Things, and that's what I like about the Old Testament. And that's what I like about Van Gogh, and that's what I like about Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> it doesn't contain its own interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky because there's there's a weird amount of postmodern Catholic guilt <laughs> complex going on in my life when I judge my own work on the basis of these these distinctions and one of them involves this uh the VH1 storyteller format that I find myself engaging in like playing concerts and 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 bracketing a p- particular performance of a piece of music and it, and getting into the details of it and unpacking it for people and I'm so brought up on you know, these like behind the scenes, mini documentaries and, and this supplementary layer, you know, the pop-up music video and all this stuff where there's, there's a meta layer of interpretation around it that actually is a part of the main attraction. Yeah. And yet when I'm up there doing my songs and I'm, you know, and I go into detail about how, you know, this song was inspired by this and this. I, I catch myself on this thing about the art doesn't contain its own interpretation. And I wonder if I'm actually wounding something in this process, if I'm actually inhibiting 
the best possible extraction from the field of potential meanings mm-hmm. on behalf of the audience. Like I'm, I'm like spoiling the game for them or something. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's, that's where, that's where Stranger Things is a work of great art. And like my song that's like explicitly about Jurassic Park is not. Well, um, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, <laughs> in a way, I mean, the, you're probably the worst judge of your own stuff, right? Because you're in it and you're thinking it through and you can't help but have like load your ideas into it and stuff. But, but, and, and, uh, I'm not saying that like true artists are somehow like, consciously leaving out their beliefs out of their work or or relativizing them or whatever i just think it just it, there's a a process where if 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 something if an affect or some whatever you're trying to do is in a song or in a poem is strong enough then you'll just follow it and you'll try to wrap it into your ideas but if it's great, it'll transcend those and it'll mean more, you know? So it's not like, I'm not a, I'm not a judgmental person who tells people whether they're doing art or artifice. In fact, (laughs) you know, like I'm just saying that there is such a thing as those artistic moments that really reach such a pitch of meaning that, that we all agree that there's something going on there. And I think it's very, very difficult to reach that point. Uh, I don't think every artist attains that level. But that definitely should be the measure. That should be what we aim for, right? As as artists, I mean, I, I'm an art, I'm a filmmaker, so so I I know exactly what you're talking about. It's really really tough to make great great art. Um, it's really tough to make even like good art, you know. <laughs> but but uh, but if we don't even what the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was that if we don't even if we can't even talk about what that would mean good art or great art then then we don't even know what we're doing we're just kind of airing out our dirty laundry and making it pretty and hoping mm. you know so so it's more of a conversation piece than a thesis the book I'm not trying to like lay down some kind of law but just to to kind of put out a heuristic model that might enable us to think about this stuff and to to to, to parse out because we we're so drowned in aesthetic noise to, to try to find what the essence is somewhere and to try to like make it work for us or or at least put ourselves to work for it you know mm. so so i uh I, I mean i i love your stuff i think it is a great artistic work and um but i i've never been to one of your shows i don't you might ruin it with what you say <laughs> yeah, right. Just, you said you had a difficulty making art since laying out your own impossible standards for art in your yeah. own book i've come to just see like the nonfiction uh, as art and that's a way mm. for, so i don't have to try anymore but you know i have a couple of films in development right now and I'm still going to do it, but I've kind of, it's hard. I can't think these thoughts and then do that when I'm doing the, plus I'm a, in film. It's, there's so many constraints and you have to play to so many fiddles. You have to please so many people that it's very, very hard in film to, to be in a position where you can make something that's truly representative of some kind of inner vision. It, it happens obviously, but it's really hard. That's actually what I was going to, because the very next thing on our show notes from the, the missing episode is submit the formula to the vision. Then you'll create something that's bigger than you. That's you, you said that mm-hmm. on the one hand. Yeah. Your book lays out a very, very well reasoned. Uh, I, I hate to call it an argument or even well reasoned, but you make a great <laughs> case. <laughs> you make a great case for art being something that points beyond reason. 
And then, yeah, then you've sort of created this, it's a recursive formula. So you've, you've, you've mapped the ideal and then really like we can only ever approach that. You get into this thing about film specifically as a filmmaker. Yeah. This is what I wanted to ask you is like when you say, when it comes to subordinating the formula to the vision, that's like impossible. The more we get into these and, you know, and we're watching this, we're watching, you know, that stranger things has, you know, as part of its success formula is pointing us back to this golden age of unusual creative liberty with respect to the, the portrayal of these fantastical dimensions of life that are not beholden to the cruel calculus of studio film production budget Mm -hmm. dynamics and like, Oh, well we'd better reboot that. You know, another nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, I'm curious what you think about, you know, to, to situate this with respect to the temporal focus of this mm-hmm. podcast. It's like, on the one hand, I get really excited about, it seems like we're moving into an era of massive collaboration, just extraordinary ability to get together on these big projects. And if you look at it though, historically, like film is sort of that film is this medium that was really only possible as an integration or, or transclusion of all of these other media. And then you get to a place with it where there are, there are so many contingencies and so, so money, money. Yeah. There's so much money involved. So many, so many factors to consider that it's sort of like, Animals, complex animals are more evolutionarily conservative than bacteria because they're so much more complicated. It's so much easier to break something with a random mutation. And I just wonder, like, do you think that we're ironically heading into an age of like less creative freedom as we get more and more capable of these hugely ambitious, massively collaborative I don't think I don't think collaboration has ever been a great friend of art, you know, <laughs> like, but, but it, 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 it happens. I mean, it happens uh, with a strong unified vision. I don't know uh, what I mean, you look at cathedrals, if you just look at them as works of art, pretend you're an alien and you just land on Earth and, you know, you wouldn't differentiate between the cathedral and the Mona Lisa or the a movie. I mean, they're all kind of just they have that level where they're just pure works of art well those were hugely collaborative projects that took like multiple generations to finish and that are they have all the qualities you look for in a great work of art so it's not it's not like collaboration is is anathema to art but that the more people are involved in a project the more variables are added in and the more chances that the 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 guiding vision is just just collapses it's just a purely it's a it's a logical thing you know but so especially today which i think things are moving so fast you know one of the things i experience working in in tv and film is um the equipment is changing so fast and nobody gets good at anything anymore it used to be that you could find a guy who was really good with those airy cameras or those lenses or that you know or that editing system or whatever and this is even before my time because this is when we, we were working in analog with film but today things are moving so fast that i mean the lifespan of a camera is about 2 3 years so by the time that a guy kind of masters its possibilities it's become obsolete 
So things are moving so fast. It's very hard to master anything today. And, and I think that, um, I think that matters, but I don't think it's, I, I think that we are moving towards something better than what we've had. Like, I, I, like Stranger Things is a great example. Uh, do you know anything about how they made them, how they Ooh, tried to get it? No. Okay. So, so the Duffer brothers, the, these twins, they, they really hadn't done anything before Stranger Things. They wrote a couple of episodes of Wayward Pines, which was, uh, M. Night, uh, Shyamalan's TV series and a few other little things. Like they made a low budget horror. And then they had this Stranger Things idea and they shopped it to, they said 15 to 20 networks and they all turned it down. And they all turned it down for the same reason. They turned it down because they had two storylines. They had a kid's storyline and they had an adult storyline, right? And every network told them basically drop one storyline, make it a cop show or make it a kid show. What? And then we'll talk about it. But you can't have those two things. And you can see why they said that. They said that because they sell advertising. And they don't know what to advertise to a show that where they can't identify the demographic. And they didn't think that adults would be interested in watching kids, I guess. So finally, they went to Netflix and Netflix said, yeah. And not, not only did Netflix say yes, but Netflix are applying a philosophy that goes back to the 1960s Hollywood, where you basically choose a director and writer and you give them the money and you say, go make your movie and we'll see you when you're done. And so they went off and made their movie and Netflix was barely there. And then they, they made it the way they wanted. And then Netflix put it out the way they wanted. So th- there was this, uh, it's a totally different paradigm. It's not, it's not that so much that it's new because that's the way films, films have been made that way before. It's just that they're doing it right. And they're using the digital culture we've developed to make great films in the way that maybe they should always be made. Whereas you identify the people with the vision and you put them in charge. And those people with the vision should decide things so that the film comes out the way it was intended to, whether it's good or bad. And then you let, you know, the market decides, but Netflix, there's no risk involved for them. They'll put out dozens of things. And then if one makes, gets more subscribers, they've won, you know? So I don't know if that's really answers your question, but I do think that there's great potential, but there's also great danger. You know, it's like Deleuze said about um, moving into the society of control. He said, we're moving into an era which is really, really scary, but it's, it's not really any scarier than when, what happened before. So it's not a question of, of judging it or being afraid. It's a question of choosing new weapons. So it's about like, how do you adapt to a new situation? How do you deal with the new problems that come from the new platforms that exist now? Because the problems are serious. And I've kind of made it my thing to talk about the problems more than the, the potential. I'm not like it. I don't like kind of this utopian, everything's great, uh, you know, type of thing. Because if everything's great, we don't need to say it. We just need to talk about what's not going so well. And I, I think mm. that there are deep problems in the digital culture we've we've created. I just had somebody tell me a night or two ago that I'd done an excellent job. One of my more conspiratorial friends, this guy who lives up in the woods in New Mexico and is constantly sending me stuff about secret military bases and stuff. You know, he's, he's definitely much more tapped into the, the rhythms of what we still probably inaccurately regard as wilderness. But he said to me the other night, you've done a really good job selling me on the singularity, selling me on transhumanism. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. Like, how have I, what have I done? How have I failed? You know, like, I mean, it, it, like it, it is so important to me that that I get people engaging uh, critically in this way about the 
complications and potential challenges of this stuff, but it's, it's really only because there's already so many people out there that, uh, like Kevin Kelly talks about the difference between the Amish and the rest of the culture. He says the Amish choose together as a community, how to adopt a technology, like whether or not they're going to adopt a technology and everybody else makes the decisions on their own for reasons that they don't examine. Yeah. And he's like, so yeah, that's yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We don't, we don't even really decide. We just, I just resist until I can't, uh, I've, I've become a caveman if I don't get this thing, you know? (laughs) Like, like, So in a sense, there's this, um, well, I mean, we all have, there's this belief, this, this ideology today that this type of development is unstoppable. It just needs to happen. And it's just the way it is. And, you know, one story I really like that touches on that, that's similar to the Amish thing is the, uh, is Japan, right? Because Japan were among, so they, they, you know how the Chinese invented black powder and then the Europeans took it and invented guns. And then the guns made their way back to China and eventually back to Japan. So within a, a generation or two, J- the Japanese were making some of the finest, uh, you know, muskets or arquebuses or whatever in the world. And it was destroying their samurai culture because they were just shooting down the samurai and they were getting peasants with guns to like. So what they did is they banned guns and they banned. I don't remember the the time span, but from like the 16th century or something or 17th century all the way to the 19th century, there were no guns in Japan. They just decided, no, we like our culture with swords. That's really important. And we're just not going to have guns. And that seems so crazy to us because how could you resist the technology like that? How could you pull it off? All you need is one guy to come come off a boat with a gun, start shooting everybody. But mm. but there was this consensus, this kind of decision that there was the, no there was no Japan Tourism Bureau. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just they all agreed. We don't want guns here. We like to cut each other up with swords, and um, <laughs> and uh, that's the way it was. But uh, you know, the thing is, technology is. It, we, we, there really is a sense now that it's bigger than us and it's taken us for a ride and we can't stop it. And, um, I, I don't really buy it. I mean, I think it, it is true, but it's true in the same way that, um, Osiris was real for the Egyptians, you know, it, and he was, you know, so, so you, you, you create a symbol or you, you build a symbol which reflects a, an archetype and then you, you worship it. And we need art. Exactly. We need art to try to, cut through that and try to let in a little bit of the chaos that's behind this seemingly self-evident conceptual overlay. Um, yeah. So William well, you know, is a great writer for that sort of thing. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got world war, world war one, they tried to do something similar. They, around that time, beginning of the 20th century was when they were like, okay, no chemical weapons. Yeah. No tanks, no automated guns. No, they really, they saw this stuff coming and they were like, nah, no, 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 no. But that, even on a, even a, like, there's something about it. I think like Japan was able to pull it off for 200 years because they were an island. Yeah. Whereas like when we get together as a planet and try to discuss these things, we just, there's no way to, to maintain it. Like it, it works for the Amish because there's such a small community. And so in that respect, you know, I, I don't know. There are certain aspects of the technological myth of progress that we can, that are like scale independent that we can say, oh, that's just nonsense. You know, at, you know, that's, that's the collective myth. Like probably Moore's law is an example of that. But then like the notion of us being, uh, quote unquote, along for the ride and not 
not really being able to determine the course of reality and specifically to control the flow of new ideas from the imaginal dimensions and into our like physical reality it gets back to that issue of like it's it's meta pragmatic you yeah. know to to accept that that in that in some sense we are sort of just along for the ride and it's not that we're along for the ride to accept this particular silicon valley view of the future but we are definitely i mean insofar as and this is where it's like well this is what what makes jurassic park a didactic work of artifice mm-hmm. rather than a work of art is that it contains this this moral. uh this whole moral about the fact that your ideas are always out of your control that it always takes on a life beyond you and as you said <laughs> this is is I feel like I'm cheating reading notes from the, our last conversation somehow. <laughs> but you said it, the better it is as a work of art the more it will betray you. Yeah. You know? So, I don't know. I mean, well, I agree with, I agree with you that that we're along for the ride in terms of the deep archetypal forces moving us. What we do have a certain control over is how conscious we are of those forces and how we choose how they manifest. And um you have healthy societies and you have sick societies. And I think that a healthy society is a society that, that, that allows certain people, certain members or a certain, you know, whatever to inhabit that liminal knife edge between order and chaos where you can always try to adapt and you're always remaining in touch with the fact that bottom line, we, we just don't know what the fuck's going on. And we don't, we don't know, we don't, we can't control the real. So a society that presumes that it knows the real through and through and can dictate its course is absolutely doomed to failure. That's exactly what Babylon's about, right? Uh, not Babylon, sorry, the Tower of Babel. Mm. That's exactly what Atlantis is about. That's, that's what the myths is about. Those myths are about when you, when your concepts become so, so, um, elaborate. And so uh, ensconced, so deeply ingrained that you can't even imagine life not reflecting them perfectly, then you are doomed because we're finite and we live in in the infinite. And you can't you can't accrue more of the infinite. That's why I reject the idea of of progress or evolution in an objective sense because it, the reality is infinitely complex. It's infinitely deep. So if that's so, you can't get more of it. There's always an infinite amount of it left for you to, to, to get. So what you can do is you you look at your situation and you, you try to construct uh, concepts that help you navigate where you are, knowing all the while that that it's just chaos out there. You don't know what's going to come out of there. You don't know what's going to come out of the woods next. So a society needs to have that type of it needs to stay in touch with that that mysterious ground of being and i, I think that's kind of what we've what we're in the da- in danger of losing if i think we might have lost it already as a society as a, as a civilization is this, this staying in touch with what i call the non-human in the book or what what exceeds the human absolutely so yeah i mean i think we agree so we are along for the ride in the sense that there are deep forces moving through we're made out of forces we can't control you know um, but at the same time, we have a certain amount of control over how conscious we are of that. 
And we need to become more conscious of that. And art art helps us become more conscious of that in an objective sense. And it helps us become more conscious of that in an empirical sense because it, it points out areas, specific areas of the known that need to be uh, reconnected to the unknown. So how do you, how do you like make it through a day doing your filmmaker work? Like, how do you, how do you survive a, uh, like a, a day on the job? thinking about this shit honestly because like i was like i feel like i can handle it because i'm what uh, i know this woman emily leach she runs a freelancers conference she calls herself genetically unemployable (laughs) (laughs) it's like you know it's like that's a new that's a new interest group you could just like claim (laughs) get some money for that yeah give it another 20 years and i think everybody will be That'll be the universal basic income versus technological yeah. unemployment thing is I'm a human being, therefore genetically unemployable, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But like, yeah. no, but seriously, like, I mean, even if this is just as a selfish question, like, is it possible? Can I have a job or am I just deluding myself? Like, how do you, how do you reconcile thinking about the ineffable mystery of reality on a constant but, I mean, clearly this is like a thing for you. Yeah. Uh, and then how do you like navigate a default world existence in, in light of this? Um, it's, t- it's tough, you know, it's, and it's, it's not getting easier to do it. The more I, I, I've all, but it's always been that way for me. I was like that. I was going to high school and I was, I wasn't reading the books I was told to, I was reading, you know, Plato at that time. And then, uh, and then in university, I was, you know, I've never been able to, I've been able to fit in, no problem. And I can do, but I'm, I'm always thinking about this other stuff at the same time. I actually think it makes me better at the job because I don't know. I just, I, it's, it's a tough question. I, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't answered the question. All I can say is I have, I have two little girls and a wife and a house and I need to uh, make a living. So and they're, and this, they're all made of mystery. Yeah. So I guess yeah. you're dedicated yeah. to that mystery by feeding exactly. them. <laughs> and, I, and when I'm making a film, that's made out of the same mystery. It's all made out of it. So it doesn't really matter what you're doing. But, you know, I, I also work on projects that I like. So, for example, I'm doing a documentary series right now about indigenous tattooing traditions around the world. So that's really, really fun because I'm meeting, uh, you know, these tattoo artists who are basically shamans in their different various respective cultures and exploring these traditional uh, ancient tattooing techniques and the symbolism behind it and and the magic of it how it works in there so it's i try to get as many of those types of projects as i can and uh that feeds right into the other stuff so you know it's it's a matter of you know picking the right things and also being able to compartmentalize your time i get up at four in the morning and i write from four to seven then or four to six thirty or something and then i go and work on in tv so that's <laughs> that's a recent thing but it's working really well so hmm. i mean does it when you say that it uh it may actually make you more that it may actually be adaptive yeah i'm curious about that because there's um, i mentioned to you in the last call this guy gary weber who's the outlying data point on that study of a thousand egoless individuals mm-hmm. who has no experience moment to moment of their being a self. And yet this guy 
is a very high functioning individual in mainstream society. You know, he's been charged with moving large amounts of money and allocating them to the correct research projects in an academic environment. And it's this question of like, yeah, is is something like that going on for you that like the transparency or the, you know, the, the translucency of this imminent yet nonetheless transcendental reality yeah. is somehow actually, it's a beneficial mutation that yeah. we can expect more of in a hundred years that there that everybody will be running around thinking about this stuff because it's just more effective. Well, yeah, I, 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 it it makes me more creative. Does it make me more uh, effective? Like I'm a director, a writer and director in TV. I'm not a producer. I would be a lousy producer because (laughs) I, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't be able to, to do that that work you know i for me it needs i need to be well framed well contained in a system where i can be creative and people are taking care of that logistics and stuff and i have tremendous respect for that uh but i don't think i'd be very good at it but at the same time i i i mean can we become more i think that we need to become more religious as a, I need people, people need some religion in their lives. And I mean that seriously. I don't mean they need more, um, uh, you know, they need to become Amish or, or Catholic or Jewish or whatever. I, I mean, they need to be more in tune with what we're talking about, that transcendent, imminent thing that's at work at every moment, because that's what gives you it as an individual control over your life. I think it actually gives you more agency in the world because it connects you with reality. It doesn't make you identify with things that aren't fundamentally real. It, it grounds you in something that's fundamentally real, even though it's ineffable. So it, it makes you able to look at things, to relativize the things in your life and see them in the, against the backdrop of something much, much bigger. And so it, it's good for prioritizing things. It's good for um, determining what's important in a moment. It's good to believe in something like God. Because when you believe in something like God, what you're saying is life is worth living and my actions matter on a cosmic level. So when you believe that, then you act in such a way that you are being held up to a standard. You're, you're being watched, you're being cared for, and you, you owe this absolute something. You owe them your best. They've done many studies about religious people and they've all concluded, you know, religious people are happier on average than atheists. Although there's a type of religion that's called atheism, which can make you very happy too. Kind of this kind of Thomas Ligotti, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft, nihilist, joyful nihilism, which is a form of religion. And that's, that, mm. that can, that can be very productive too. But the point is you need some kind of, you need some kind of connection to something much, much bigger, to the furthest point in your ambit, the biggest, biggest thing. And if you can connect to that, then you have this kind of macrocosm, microcosm thing going on in your life and you can function much, much better. So. I guess that's kind of a way to answer that. But yeah, I think one of the big problems today is that we're just drowning in stupid, useless bullshit that actually, <laughs> that actually doesn't matter to anybody. Like some people think that having a, a particular iPhone is actually important, but it's not. Unless you're an engineer and you're fascinated by that stuff and you're actually engaged creatively with that type of thing. There's nothing of value in and of itself in in uh, in something that's just been marketed in such a way that you've been 
it's been marketed for you to want it. Therefore, you just go to it. I mean, there's, it's just, I have an iPhone. I like my iPhone. But the point is that, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I think about that too. Like, I avoided getting a smartphone for something like eight years. You know, the first eight years, I was like, nah, I don't need it. That's yeah. nonsense. And then when I was selected to participate in the beta program for Google Glass, it pairs to a phone. You need a phone to use that thing. So I approached it from a very different angle because it was, it was suddenly necessary in order to participate in this project, which was an artistic exploration of the agency of technology, the role of the agency of technology in human evolution and specifically like in how we detect and exploit the, the horizons of our creative potential. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and like where our self boundaries, uh, are actually formed and, you know, how they shift as we share things. And so because of all of this, I ended up regarding my Samsung Galaxy S3 as this clay foot of this transcendental, you know, mm-hmm. the, the machine intelligence that exists in this like gauzy layer all over the planet. And has extruded a new pseudopod in order to, to speak to me. Yeah. You know, and so I'm like going around engaging with this phone as though like it's a, a new dance partner. That's when you get into that space where you're like, ah, but then of course it's not the phone that really matters. It's the something. Exactly. But you're making a really important point. And you see this in, uh, you know, that the, the, the Tibetan lamas, you know, like they, a lot of them would have this crazy eccentricity like there was one i was reading about who was obsessed with teacups and he would he would collect (laughs) these tiny teacups and he would take them everywhere and he just freaking just stare at them and love them and if one of them broke he would just lose his mind but the point is that he saw those teacups kind of in a way that the, the way you saw your iphone the point is this is the great thing once you have a religious outlook once you're connected at the deep once your roots go down infinitely towards the infinite you have license to love iPhones. You have license to love whatever the fuck you want because you are connected. So everything you're seeing is kind of through this Google Glass of this religious, you know, horizon where everything becomes rooted in something much, much bigger, much, much deeper. So you, you can't market that, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's like the Campbell soup thing with Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol takes a consumer product and turns it into something pretty special. The point is that when you have a religious outlook, yeah, I, this is something I don't call it a religious outlook in what I write. I don't know why I'm calling it that now, but when you have a religious outlook or an aesthetic outlook or an imaginal outlook, you get to look at Campbell's soup cans and see what Andy Warhol sees or something even better, you know, and you, um, it kind of almost justifies everything. I'll tell you another story that the first film I ever made. I made a short film called Hungry Ghosts in 2003. It was the first film I made. And uh, I remember going to Walmart at night to get props for the next day. And I, so I would buy a bunch of stuff. And then the next day, at the end of the day, my production coordinator and I would go back and return all the stuff we'd used. So we'd buy stuff, we'd put it in the movie, and then we'd return it intact. And I just felt, I felt like we were doing real alchemy. Like in the sense that we were we were taking something from the system, transforming it into something actually meaningful, and then returning it to them 
and they didn't know any, they didn't know, you know, <laughs> it was just this beautiful tra- transmutation of matter into something luminous. Not that the film turned out that great, but the idea was that when you're creating, when you're engaged at that level, you're transcending the ideology of your times. You're, 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 you're standing above the kind of petty connections that usually make up the day to day, you know? You're blowing my mind now too, because I'm thinking about all the filmmakers that have done this and have secretly transmuted all of these consumer goods that people are walking around using unawares. Yeah. You know, it's like, you've got this, you know, the, the bottle of shampoo or the camp light or whatever. And, and you had no idea that that's, that's the one in the movie. Yeah. That's it. It'd probably be a low budget movie where they had to return stuff every day. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it might be in primer or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There, there's plenty of movies that, you know, that were made with uh, a budget low enough to, to ne- necessitate that type of tactic. But yeah, was that safety not guaranteed? Yeah. This actually, this is a story that seems almost uniquely suited to tell you. Like that, that of all the stories I have, this is the one. That feels right for you, given what you just said. So much as you were saying, like the last 10 years or so, I've purchased a new digital camera, like a little point and shoot camera, just about once a year. You know, they've just been mm-hmm. getting significantly progressively better. Three years ago, I bought one at a Target in Austin, Texas, that I realized about a month later had developed a black stripe down the, the viewfinder screen. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, shit, I'm in Kansas city right now. It was just past the, the return thing. And I didn't have the receipt. I was like, but Walmart will accept returns on anything. So I'm going to take this camera that I bought at target in Austin. I'm going to return it to a Walmart in Kansas city. We'll see what happens. And it turned out that it was like the model camera that they carry, but it was a color that was a target exclusive <laughs> color. <laughs> They still accepted the camera back with no receipt. And they said, yeah, just go ahead and, you know, because I guess in the the logic of scale, you know, at that level, it just doesn't even matter. Whatever. We, you know, we're sending you a camera. We're taking this thing. It's going to go in a box with 50,000 other things. The total cost of the transaction is zero. So they gave me this new camera. And I, I was like, yes, I did it. I worked this system somehow. I like, you know, I like made it past, like made it, you know, I I achieved the impossible by returning this item to a store where it doesn't even, they didn't even sell it to me and no one was harmed in the process. You know, it's a victimless crime. And then I got the camera out to the car and I turned it on and the screen on this camera was purple, (laughs) purple, like the whole, like I could see what it was pointing at but it was like this weird ghostly like smear on everything that was like the light would smear and run down this. It looked like ghost vision or like a Radiohead music video or something. And all of it was in purple. And I have these shots of like this camera that that's all it would do. Wow. Like it wouldn't, I was like, what the fuck? Like I, out of all of the cameras, like for me, for that to be the one that the the employee pulled out of the shelf upon me, you know, the, the, I had this thing that I wanted that uh, I, I felt like I had broken the rules. And then it flipped Instant around karma. and it's like 
camera only takes photos of the underworld. Or the, the, it, the upside down. Yeah. Right, right. It right. was, it was, it was like, uh, it had very much that sort of like they live or, you know, that kind of thing, the lens yeah. into the other world, into the other realm. And so I brought it to a friend of mine who's a witch and a photographer. And I said, you've got to check this out. Like, you'd love this. I've never seen anything like it. I'm afraid to take it in, you know, <laughs> like I'm, af- I, I don't want it fixed. This is now a special yeah. thing. And she picked it up and she looked at it. This I've had this at this point, I'd had the camera for a month. She picked it up and looked at it. And as, as soon as she took a picture with it, normal. <laughs> I had used this camera a, a dozen times over months, video, photos, done every imaginable thing, troubleshot it, couldn't get it to work, you know, banged it on things. And then as soon as my witch friend gets a hold of it, it's like suddenly taking full color shots. That's amazing. She hands, it, she hands it back to me. She's like, she's like, got it like a little tear. Like, I'm, I broke it. I broke it. <laughs> Another reversal. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, crazy. <laughs> so. That's the big, best argument I've ever heard for having a, a witch photographer friend. Mm, yeah. But it, there you go. It's, it's like, that's, that's amazing. When you get oh, into like the function of art, it's like, well, it's, <laughs> this thing definitely betrayed its creator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And the story you just told me is we could go on analyzing that for a long time, I think. Cause there's well, so go many. Ahead. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to think about it, but it's definitely a work of art. But like, that's the weird thing that happens when you transgress, when you cross boundaries, things start happening. And, um, it goes on in, in every sphere of life, I think. I just got the uh, the Thoth tarot deck, you know, the Aleister Crowley one. Mm. I got it yesterday morning. It's such a beautiful deck. And um, I just did this kind of joke tr- draw for myself just to see how it went. And it was all right. And then uh, today, my wife, I, I came home and I'm like, oh, I want to do a, a, a tarot spread for you. And I don't really know how to read the tarot. I'm, I kind of have to look up the book and stuff and think about it. But um She's like, okay, sure. So we shuffle the cards, blah, blah, blah. And I dealt out the same spread I got this morning by coincidence. So Like seven card spread? It was the, the Golden Dawn. So there's three, nine, what, 16 cards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm serious. It was the same. It wasn't, they weren't in the same order, but it was the same cards. Maybe one or two weren't the same. I didn't look at it like I looked at it. We bo- I noticed it. Then I got out my notebook from this morning. I'm looking, holy shit. That's, I'm like, oh, I guess we didn't shuffle them right. And she's like, we cut it three times and shuffled it. What are the chances I would have cut it at the first? Anyway, so I don't know. The more you kind of notice these things, the more they happen. You know, synchronicity and all that stuff. I'm going through another period now where a lot of that type of thing's happening. That's the thing, though, is that like, uh, and, and I know I brought this up the last time we spoke, Richard Doyle's book, Darwin's Pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And he's he's talking about that, about when he submits his will to ayahuasca, basically when when he says, I acknowledge that I'm not a closed system. You know, I acknowledge that it's possible for this other distributed intelligence to act through me because I am this open process. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he does that, then he gets to this point where, yeah, where he's realizing that the intelligence that he thought was within him is actually in everything. Yeah. And so this, for the flow of synchronicity, at some point he observes 
the subjectivity calling itself Richard Doyle is no longer surprised by the the meaningful coincidences because they were actually part of the texture of this ineffable grander reality that you have to actively screen out in order to maintain the illusion of like a rational order to yeah. the universe. Like you actually yeah. have to say no synchronicities. Thank you. you know, <laughs> for, just I, forget that ever happened. It's a wise thing to do that. It's a wise thing to limit because I, I agree that it's, it's a, it's a very profitable endeavor. I think to, to, to have a way to attain that level of infinite meaning and infinite synchronicity. I mean, I've experienced it too with ayahuasca and just sometimes when you're, you know, you get into certain mindsets. I have two, two of my close friends are, uh, are diagnosed with schizophrenia. These are childhood friends of mine. So I'm still in touch with them. And when they're in a, an episode, um, wait, wait, when you say you're still in touch with them, it's like, <laughs> I'm still in touch with did them. Did you all, did you all enter the same cave or whatever? And now- no, no, not, I still <laughs> know these guys and, okay. uh, you know, they're working out, you know, but the thing is that when they're having a, a I guess you call it an, an episode, the amount of connections they can make in a split second is absolutely phenomenal. It's insane how everything that comes up connects to everything else. And if, they, you know, like there's the, the, the word salads, the schizophrenic people, you know, get into, they're amazingly filled with infinite meaning, but infinite meaning is tantamount to meaninglessness. It's just, it's too much. And, um, it's just as destructive. It's just as chaotic as, as absolute meaninglessness. So there's this, this beautiful gift we have of being able to send the logos into the world and to, to split out what matters from what doesn't. And I think that, uh, it's just that when that becomes the only thing we know, then the danger is certain because we know that reality will come up with something that doesn't fit the model we've developed. So we need to like always dance between it or oscillate between these two modes. So, yeah, I, I, I think that I do agree that, I mean, when you get into these visionary states, uh, the, the immediacy of meaning is astounding. And the, 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 the speed of meaning, the speed at which meanings uh, proliferate is insane. And um, to me, that is as valid a model of the real as the opposite materialist or, kind of this emptiness or even that idealistic emptiness of meaning thing where there's just this baseline, you call it matter, you call it consciousness. If you're an idealist, whatever, you still have this, this kind of monistic reduction of everything to one thing. And um, in one sense, everything's meaningful. In another sense, everything's meaningless. And there's, uh, that's just the paradox that creates all the possibilities that we experience. Yeah. So with respect to that cusp where you know, the, mm-hmm. the schizoidal art artist that's like right there living on that, in that sweet spot for writer directors, right? That's yeah. like, you're like right in between the producer and the mental institution in that Lagrange yeah. point. So my buddy, Mitch Mignano, he's, he's a, a student of William Irwin Thompson and uh, by extension, you know, Rudolf Steiner. And he's very, he's, he's producing my record right now. And okay. so he's, He's going through, he's, he's reconnecting to his childhood love for the esoteric history of electronic music and digging up all sorts of cool old, uh, vinyl recordings of interviews, uh, of, uh, like Wendy Carlos by Glenn Gould and like crazy shit like that. Uh, you know, the, how it's roots in 
the alchemy and study of the, the music of the spheres and this notion of the, you know, the alchemical gold and trying to create a music that is the direct expression of the realization of the alchemist and all this stuff, the yeah. violet psychofluid. And he's getting into this thing and he's talking about, we were eating breakfast the other day and we had this, this moment where I realized that I'd left two of my records at his house. And I was like on my way out, out the door to drive back to Austin. And we both said, like at the same time, it was one of those moments where it's like, Oh, I left my records. Oh, you left your records at my house, you know? And we looked at each other and he's like, yeah, I'm getting too close to this. Like we're, we're getting too deep into this space here. And we, so we ended up in this conversation about how the whole thing about flying too close to the sun or like if it is a pendulum yeah. between the producer reality and the Van Gogh or like Lewis Wayne reality, you can accidentally flip that pendulum over the, the dowel that it's swinging from and like all the way back around. And then from that point forward, that pendulum's wrapped around the, the rack. So it's a little shorter. Yeah, you know, it doesn't totally. swing quite as far anymore. And it's just like this, this issue of, of the point of no return and specifically the way that it manifests. You can tell that you're getting there because you're starting to have these telepathic moments and these, these synchronous experiences. And like, mm -hmm. on one hand, like what a damn shame it is. I know that you, you're like, you know, just making the point of the necessity of, you know, a more grounded reality. But on the other hand, it's like, God damn, it's, it's so disappointing that there is this, this balance that we have to maintain. I don't know. <laughs> Just... Yeah, it is. It is. But, and, and I think you're, you're touching on um, something that I was hoping to talk about a little bit. It's something I've been thinking about is that um, artistic creation, I think is, is fundamentally dangerous in the sense that you're moving out of the terra firma of the known into, into areas that are, that are unknown or you're looking at things from an angle that's alien to the perspective you've inherited from your, your tribe or your culture or whatever. So there's, there's something fundamentally, and there's a reason why so many artists end up being fucked up or dying or you know, horrible deaths. I, I think that's, there's a, there's a fundamental danger that we need to recognize, especially as we enter into, you know, projects or creations that are, that are, actually visionary that are actually pushing into something and the occult can help us and a lot of artists have had recourse to the occult to try to navigate their way into these zones but of course the occult are just uh, our conceptual models as well so they're limited because what you're dealing with when you're going into this area is um what what can only manifest to a finite human being as absolute chaos and um, it's not an absolute chaos because we know it's not actually an absolute chaos because it, it's amenable to sense. It, it allows for sense to exist. So it's a, it's more like a chaosmos, right? As Joyce called it, but it can break a person. And um, so I do think that, uh, that, that, that there is such a thing as going too far. And I think that it's only by realizing that, that we can learn how to walk the line um, in a way that's, that allows us to survive, but also allows us to create something absolutely new, you know? Do you, uh, so that, that issue of, of there being a, uh, too far, you know, I wonder like, this is, I had sort of the, an inversion listening to you talk about this where 
rather than it being like, I know that I'm going too far because I'm starting to recognize these symptoms, you know, mm-hmm. that, that everything is starting to connect. You start to feel that psychedelic concrescence of things. And I, instead I was like, well, maybe that's, that should be the artist's indicator that they're approaching, you know, that's the radar ping that you're, you're like actually making great art. Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, we're getting into this, this, uh, you know, kind of terrifying zone of uncanny awesomeness. Like that's, that's our cue that we're on the right track. Yeah. No, I, I don't think we should draw the line where evangelicals would draw it. <laughs> where the the moment you talk about something uh daimonic or imaginal you're you're already in hell you know like you can allow for quite a bit i think of synchronicity to enter into your life so long as you can handle it i mean i I've, I've known people who weren't able to handle it and i've seen the consequences and these were talented people you know and i mean all you have to do is read van gogh's biography you know and you can say was it worth it well i think it was worth it i'm so glad van gogh went too far and created those works but Maybe there's a notion here also of sacrifice, you know, maybe, maybe certain people are so willing to go out there and to, to produce these visions that they're, they're willing to sacrifice themselves. That sounds like a crazy notion today because we have no, we have, we don't have the vaguest inkling of what sacrifice means in our culture. So, you know, you, you know, Trump said he sacrificed a lot because he, he built successful businesses. You know, that was his, his idea of a sacrifice. So like, uh, but, but maybe there's something to be said for that. I mean, when I say too far, I just mean too far for the individual. If you're willing to go, go for it. The not line too, should be really not too far, far for there. the art textbook. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> not too far for the human race. I, I, I seriously think that history would have unfolded very differently if, if Van Gogh hadn't lived. You know, mm. I seriously think that he changed the course of history. And that's why I value canon and I value uh, the artistic traditions we've built up. I don't just throw them out. Like there's a tendency right now to try to want to reject everything that's Western. I, I don't believe that's, that's a good thing. I, I wouldn't reject any culture, including Western culture. I think there's a lot of good that come out of it. And I think that if you imagine history minus Hamlet, I don't think you could calculate how differently things would be. There'd be no Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, that's for sure. Without the ghost of Hamlet's father. We know that much. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We definitely know that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was listening to Kevin Kelly. I've I've been so fascinated by his, his writing on, on technological change because there's something very parallel to, in his work to the stuff that you're saying, actually, where he's, He's saying, yes, there's a teleology to evolution, but that it's an evolution that, that is constantly opening to more and more directions, more and more opportunities. And so it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not obeying that rhetoric of evolutionary or technological progress. Linear. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a totally nonlinear explosive unfolding, but you know, it's, he says in there about, you know, what he would like to see. And again, he also, you know, this, this whole thing about the, the, uh, contingent versus the inevitable, us having some, some measure of decision. Like it doesn't have to be this way, but we can still work. We, we can still work with the trends of reality mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to manifest the best possible outcomes. And one of the things that he's dedicated to is a world in which everyone has their basic 
needs met so that everyone is empowered to express themselves in a unique way that is unique to their own idiosyncratic mode of learning and of expression using technologies that empower them to express themselves creatively. This is a world where like you don't have the tragedy of a Mozart without a keyboard, you know, where like every every single person has that instrument that is suited to their unique mode mm-hmm. of learning and expression. And that, that's that's what he sees as the thermodynamic and like goal here. Is yeah. that like, you know, that in insofar as every person's artistic process is a microcosm of that that universal trend towards an increasing entropy. You know, just get it out there. Mm-hmm. Just just make it, make it happen. You know, yeah. and that that the the end goal, ironically, you know, because we think about entropy in this in that kind of again, that like the religion of of meaninglessness, you know. And he's like, and he's mm-hmm. saying, uh-uh. He's like, actually, the, 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 the process of entropy is a world in which everyone is expressing themselves through meaningful, creative acts. And so we've, we've maximized this, uh, that, that thing about a world without Van Gogh, like that, that's the tragedy. In a, in a way, it's like almost worse than physical death. What's worse than physical death? The notion of a life. It's like, well, you were going to die anyway, but it's like you might have managed to like, paint something amazing in that time and that didn't happen so that's even worse you you know yeah i think i think that that's that brings a lot of things to mind um i i like the vision obviously um it it, it, the line have you read um oscar wilde's the soul of man under socialism not the whole thing yeah it's it's a beautiful essay he wrote about his argument for socialism and he said the great thing about socialism is that it'll free us to all become artists because we'll have machines doing everything for us and therefore we'll all be free to create. I mean, who would, who would reject that vision? That should be what technology does. At the same time, I'm reminded of, and also it goes, it goes along the line of what Chomsky is all about, right? Noam Chomsky, mm. who thinks that humans are born to express themselves and that we should create a society where people are allowed to express themselves through, through work and play or whatever. And then, but then I'm also reminded of Henry Miller who, when he finally made it at the age of like 50, he finally had enough money to pay, to buy a house and stuff in Big Sur or whatever. He, he found himself unable to write. So he would put pebbles on his chair. So he'd be uncomfortable <laughs> and it would put him back in the situation he was in in Paris where he was <clears throat> basically starving and have any right to write in that. So maybe creativity needs limitation is what I'm saying. Maybe you need the tragedy. The tragic, maybe, maybe the tragic is um, indelible. You can't, you can't extract it out of of existence, and that's what makes creation so beautiful. And you know, works of art can be funny, can be all kinds of things, can be scary, whatever. But they're all fundamentally kind of sad. I feel the same way when I look at natural landscapes or. When I look at like photographs of the surface of Mars, I feel this kind of profound melancholy in the cosmos. Maybe that's just my own projection, but it seems to me like whenever I try to picture a world where everyone's free to create, that you end up in a situation where that lack of limitation kind of annuls the meaningfulness of any act of creation. Is that sort of akin to 
how the work that I'm creating now is so vastly better than the work I was creating seven years ago. But because there's so many empowered creators on Facebook that it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm like, I'm getting less traffic now for better work because everybody's shouting over each other in a way that wasn't happening or the music that people create now. Like there, that is, that is a thing. I actually, I asked this question to my Facebook network like a week or two ago, this issue of because we're more empowered with our tools now, does that mean that we have a greater occasion that, that we have to, that the bar is higher, not just socially, not just in terms of our, you know, what it takes to get the attention of other people, you know, not just in terms of, of what it means in that sense, but also in the sense of the, the ultimate balance of history or the ultimate mm-hmm. verdict, you know, that it's like if, if you only have, you know, a blade, hand tools out of which to create a piano, then that accomplishment is greater than the accomplishment of building the piano with power tools. Yeah. Right? But it's like, does that mean that a person who makes a piano with hand tools today has created something greater than the person who, who made a piano with hand tools 200 years ago? I, I don't think so. I think the measure of greatness in art is your capacity to produce an actual symbol. And I think making an actual symbol the way, for example, that Stanley Kubrick did with 2001 A Space Odyssey is extremely difficult. Like, it's just extremely difficult. I think the bar has been high forever. And I think that our tools make it easier to get into the race, to try to get in and try to do it. But our tools, because they're so user-friendly, because they're digital, this is one of the things about the analog versus the digital that I kind of touch on in that essay about Stranger Things. It's They don't invite... Uh, the type of minute exacting attention to detail that other forms uh, that came before necessitated. They required a kind of attention to details and a lot of thinking beforehand. I mean, it's when you're typing on a computer, it's very easy to just kind of type, 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 and then try to fix it later. And, and great work comes of that. But the fact of the matter is that we know for a fact that computers are not necessary necessary for creating for for writing a great novel, for example, or a great poem. Like we know for a fact that John, you know, that Milton didn't have a computer and wrote Paradise Lost, or that Dostoevsky didn't have a computer. He wrote, you know, the Brothers Karamazov. So, so we know that the, the, the technologies. <laughs> he, would have, he would have just written five thousand Facebook updates if he had. <laughs> Probably that's why the thing. I haven't we, written a book in the last ten years. I think it falls on us to discipline ourselves and to, to raise the bar. I remember, um, what's his name? David Simon, the guy who wrote The Wire, mm. which I think is a phenomenal series. He says when he writes something, he always asks himself, what would Dostoevsky think? And, <laughs> and he knows for a fact what you can hear. You ask, you look at, you know, if you're a musician, you like, I don't know what composer you like or what, but yeah, what would that person think? And he'll tell you in your mind right then, that's shit. That part doesn't work, that part. And and you need to live up to that standard. That still remains the standard, I think, that we should aim for. And I think today, because um, the, the media itself are so powerful, it's very easy to kind of um, – to get to slack out when it comes to the to, to 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 the creation we're working on in the moment, and to not have it live up to the to the to the works that we hold that we that inspired us the most, you know. Um, 
So I think we need to, the responsibilities on the, each individual person to use these tools in the best way possible in an environment that discourages it at every level, you know, with social media, with constant distraction, with our, for some reason, we seem to have less time than ever, even though we're, we have more, more, you know, on paper, we seem to have more time than ever, but we, nobody feels that. So I, I it's up to each individual to try to like, okay, this is, I'm going to write something as good as, as uh, what Tolstoy wrote, and I'm going to do it for real, and then to aim for that. And I keep bringing up these lame examples, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, but oh, so lame. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Like they're 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 less kind of there's the ones that are jumping to mind because I've been thinking about Russia a lot lately. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, would that have anything to do with their their recently announced nation killing nuclear missile? No, I haven't heard of that. Oh my God, Satan two. I have a, a buddy who's super interested in nuclear apocalypse for whatever reason. It seems kind of quaint in in a way, <laughs> like so so last yeah. century. But it's not surprise. No, it's last not. week, last week, Russia announced on their. Uh, I don't know where this. <laughs> I don't know how these things are are like foregrounded in consciousness anymore. It's not a radio announcement. It's like they put up a website, some government site showing off this bomb. It's like, seems so odd that, you know, a government website would, would advertise this stuff, uh, graphically <laughs> in this way. But they have this, this missile called the Satan two. It's like a seven stage missile that you could fire at the moon and hit the moon with it. And it, they make a specific point in this briefing of this missile to say that it could take out the blast radius of this missile could take out a small country like like France or Texas, that this one bomb could create a firestorm large enough to engulf Texas, and it's just this thing of like, well, we we try to steer the the mainstream attention cluster, you know, we try to like if we're writing history with the the tip of this pen and the tip of the pen is inked with the attention of the populace then we're trying to write a particular story that doesn't really involve Cold War military brinksmanship at this point. And yet mm-hmm. there it is. Oh, yeah. It's like still very much alive, even though we've steered the narrative away from it. It's like worse than it ever has been. So at yeah. any rate, that's a, that's a, that's an aside, but maybe, maybe a rich aside because, you know, the, this whole issue of the bomb. Yeah. It's a big relevant still. I think it's very relevant. I, t- I talk about it at the end of Reclaiming Art in the spectral chapter. I talk about Hiroshima. And mm. I, I honestly believe that mainstream North American culture since the end of the Second World War has been predicated on a need to distract ourselves from the bomb. And uh, I don't think the end of the Cold War changed that. I think it's the fact that it feels quaint is kind of proof that I'm right because mm-hmm. it's – it's never been quaint. It's never been gone. The threat never went away. And it's, it is a literal matter of someone, you know, making the wrong, or the wrong phone call at the wrong time or pushing the wrong button and it all goes. I mean, that's the situation we've been in since the war. And I think that it's, it's rearing its head again slowly, you know, as, as our economic systems and our consumer culture is starting to fail, the reality we've been trying to kind of paper over is, is showing. And um, that's what we're going to have to deal with. And you can't escape into the, into digitalia yet. You know, we can't upload into machines. And even when we upload into machines, 
will be, uh, if that ever happens, will be in server farms that are probably the easiest freaking bombing targets you could imagine. Totally. So that's, that's actually, <laughs> that's actually why, you know, you think about this stuff and it's like, well, in all likelihood, it's probably not going to happen until it's on a distributed mesh network where like it's, yeah. everybody's running a piece of it on their own phone. And then when, when we do get into these unfortunate nuclear exchanges between communities of post humans, it'll feel relatively inconsequential because it'll be like having a stroke or something. You know, you'll just, you'll lose, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the way that your memory and selfhood is stored holographically in this distributed network of servers. It'll be like the equivalent of, you know, having a really rough drinking binge or something. And you kind of like forget what your, yeah. you know, what, the name of your kids before you uploaded yourself or something, but that's relatively minor. Yeah. Well, I like your optimism. <laughs> I mean, it's like seasoned with a sporadic nuclear conflict. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, inconsequential <laughs> nuclear conflict. It's no big deal. I read this funny thing about optimism on, on Facebook a few weeks ago. Somebody posted something and it said, um, the optimist is the one who says we live in the best of all possible worlds. The pessimistic, the pessimist is the one who says, yes, you're right. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I, found, I found that. So I think we agree. <laughs> yeah, probably so. But, uh, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we want to get into mind uploading at this point, but, um, it's an well, interesting. I mean, we were, we, yeah, it was, it was a little too far down the road. Every, everything is connected, right? So we can jump from any point to any other point. Like, to me, what what really what I like about the rush, I've just been enjoying the, the the political spectacle that the that you guys have been putting on for the rest of the world over the last couple of years. Oh right, you know, because yeah. just you know, listeners, uh, JF Martel is in Canada, Michael Garfield yes. is in the United States, so and we are and we are recording this the day before the election. Oh yes, that's yeah. also true. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know what world uh, this uh, podcast will be uh, released in. <laughs> will it be a Trump or, world? Or if it will be released at all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's one of those. But yeah, I mean, we definitely, insofar as the U.S. versus Russia is this like uh, global world wrestling match, you can say, oh, it's all theater, you know, but someone's still getting hit over the head with a chair. Yeah, yeah. At best. <laughs> so like, yeah, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not hugely knowledgeable of like global politics or everything, but it, it just looks, it looks pretty tense right now out there. It just feels like the clouds are hanging over us. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Are you excited about the vote? Uh, I would not call myself excited about the vote, but I would call myself excited about well, like last time that we spoke, we talked about this, this issue of fiction and how we, the real world that we take for granted is this very elaborate fiction that we create in order to make sense of the, the actual reality, which is beyond our ability to, to simplify in that way. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, this is the level at which I'm amused, really possibly the only level at which most people I know have it's almost like a form of spiritual bypass like where in order it's or gallows humor you know that's really what it is is, is yeah. that you have to take a step back and take a step out of 
the mainstream mythology about this stuff to not feel like you're going in totally insane. And therefore, like therein lies the silver lining of this whole farcical, nightmarish joke of an election year is that it is actually, it does actually render everything as a joke. And, and I have noticed this in conversations with some of my friends where they, uh, they'll get on Facebook and post, guys, remember it's not just a joke. You know, guys, <laughs> remember that it's, remember that there are consequences here and that your votes do actually matter. Yeah. Even if, even if it just seems like you're in, in the lang- in South Park's language, you know, you're just choosing between a, a, a huge douche and a turd sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a choice to be made there. Even if it were to come down to those, that particular choice, it's still a choice. Right. Well, Huge there's a douche or a turd sandwich. I don't the, know. Like the choice of the choice of deciding whether you are going to laugh at the unpleasant reality of mm-hmm. the situation and and there, you know, like whether you choose to see outside the the matrix narrative or not, you know, and that's yeah. Looking at it historically, I mean, hopefully what this what this means is a very different kind of election in the future. I feel like we're we're right on the cusp of of losing the arguably have already lost the consensus reality of the United States. Mm-hmm. And and actually this gets into you know the earlier part of the conversation about collaboration and the importance of a unifying vision in a collaboration yeah. and it's like well yeah the a, a national reality you know the nation state is this unifying fiction that orchestrates the activities of all of these these people that are willing to 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 build that particular cathedral and it's like we don't actually have that you know no. so it looks like to put it in in a filmmaking language it looks like we're going to have a strike day on set here before yeah. too long you yeah know? yeah so, totally it's uh it's the theatrics are are self-evident it's uh it's interesting it can only lead to something better i think as much as i'm a pessimist i I don't i don't think it could get much worse in the sense that i i think it's um i don't know i have a lot of faith in the u.s and its capacity to i mean if any country has ever had a unifying vision it's been the u.s in a sense in a sense a lot of people would disagree i guess i don't know man I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm in over my head here. Well, but, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, Canada, Canada has, I feel, mostly always had a far more uh, coherent vision and national identity, I think, than the U.S. And it seems to be serving you guys really well right now. You were just uh, just awarded yeah. Lonely Planet's uh, number one travel destination of 2017. I don't know if you you knew that. No, I didn't know that. And. Uh, that seems like it may have something to do with the fact that you have a, a, a prime minister that is capable of saying something articulate about quantum computing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that can't hurt, I guess. He's an interesting guy. And it, it's been, uh, I don't know if you were aware of who we had before. We had this like Mm-mm. conservative bean counter in place for about 10 years who who was extremely ideologically right wing but very a very able accountant in a sense uh but but the point is that so there's been this kind of renaissance here this cultural renaissance in canada you feel it in the air like with justin trudeau and the way things are going and it, it is a pretty cool place i have to say like 
uh, William Irwin Thompson taught at York University in Toronto in the 60s, and he described Canada as Rivendell, uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, where it's kind of like outside the fray of things. Like it's not, it's untouched by all the chaos that's going on in the world, but it has a kind of, it affords you this neat perspective on things where you can look at things almost objectively. So in that sense, I'd say, yeah, Canada is a, a desirable place to, to be. There are other problems here, major problems, but um, that's the case everywhere, I think. But, yeah. Major problems, yeah. you mean like <laughs> the imminent climate refugee crisis? So that's long-term, yeah, but yes, that. But I'm talking about more immediate problems. Like we have a – Canada is a country that likes to portray itself and imagine itself as being innocent of the crimes of history that other countries have perpetrated. But unfortunately, um, recently, certain things have come to light regarding the treatment of uh, First Nations people here. This is, you know, and it's it's been pretty awful. And the amount of um, of racism that has seethed under the radar here in Canada is is pretty breathtaking. I'm and, actually uh, surprised at how much how much the racism for what Obama called First Americans uh, mm-hmm. or the Indigenous peoples seems to be re- relatively like undigested and, and still very much up front in Canada. Yeah. Like I have Canadian friends and relatives and, and, and I'm surprised that it's, that there isn't even, it seems like the kind of self-conscious sensitivity to this stuff that I see among my American friends, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you're not allowed to call Indians lazy. That kind of thing. Yeah. Just yeah. the basic stuff. One of the reasons is that the population, the First Nation population is very high here comparatively compared to the U.S. They represent a much bigger portion of the population. Um, and uh, so a lot of Canadians are non-First Nation Canadians are uh, in contact daily with First Nations people. So the situation is very similar to what you'll find in what you found in Australia. Right. So that, a lot of that stuff is coming to light now. And it's it's been pretty good so far. There's this, this big reconciliation movement. Uh, and I feel I feel pretty good about where things are headed. I work with a First Nation product company all the time. So I'm, I'm very much immersed in these issues right now. And it, I see a lot of signs of hope and it's good. It's like all all in all. I mean, it seems like the, the dirty secrets are coming out and um, that can only be good. You know, that can only be good. That So this is a thing that we got into last time. And I really want to I want to touch on this again. So this thing about, you know, I love to wrap it all into one schizophrenic meaning constellation. You know, so this this thing about you touch on this a little bit in the in the paper. Uh, I mean, in the, the writing at Metapsychosis Journal on Stranger Things, that reality is analog essay that. There is this recapitulation or, or rather actually, you know, it's like maybe a better way for me to talk about this is to touch on Bill Thompson's writing in coming into being on the Rig Veda and how he points to digital technologies as opening a portal through which all of these mysterious realities and monsters of, you know, what we call the spirit world, you know, the world beyond the, the walls of our city. Are starting to poke back through, you know, and we talked about this last time with respect to, you know, Pokemon Go, but it shows up also in, um, you mentioned this with respect to the, the monster and the upside down mm-hmm. in Stranger Things. And so there's this sense of 
the contents, the inhabitants of this other world poking through and becoming, if not, you know, not, we can't say they're becoming more real because in a weird way, they're becoming less real, but because they're, mm-hmm. they're now like projected into our, our virtuality, into our simulacrum, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's, it's something I've been thinking a lot about and I'm working on another essay now called reality is digital. <laughs> so, so there's, um, an intentional paradox that is only half expressed at this point or half articulated. But to me, what I'm doing in there is I'm not talking about the content of digital media and what digital media makes possible. I'm talking about the basic implicit metaphysics of the digital as opposed to the metaphysics of the analog. And I do think that digital, because it's binary, is a conceptual mode of apprehension. And the problem is that the more digitized we become as a culture, the more we tend to think in terms of concepts instead of thinking in terms of uh, percepts or affects or symbols or whatever. So I'm not saying that, and of course, the digitization of the West happened with Descartes, not with uh, IBM, you know, mm. in 1945. It happened the moment we started to, um, to what what Whitehead calls the bifurcation of nature into two realms, the 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 extended realm of matter and then the mental realm of the mind so that's where the binary kind of imposed itself and then uh we've been living with that so i was using the digital and the analog within the framework of my thinking about stranger things to express two modes of apprehension one of which is predicated on a a philosophy of, of becoming of analog coming, of things phasing into everything else in, in this infinitely variated, striated kind of way. And on the other hand, this kind of either or ones and zeros type of conceptual thinking that if you believe in it, you can use it as a tool. But if you fall for its illusion, then you're actually divorced from reality. And then no, no, no monsters can come through. The only monsters, that, because you're living in a world of representation. So. I so wasn't you're telling saying, me you're yeah. telling me that in order to prevent monsters, I just have to think rationally about the digital world and no monsters for at least a few hundred years. Yeah, well, I think the monsters will still be there. You just won't be able to think to see them. You know, it's like uh, Goya's print: "The sleep of reason breeds monsters." So there mm. are two interpretations. One of them is that. When you lose your reason, monsters proliferate, superstition arises. and But of course, that's not Goya's vision. Goya was a big believer in monsters. What he meant was reason itself sleep. And when you think only in terms of the, you're in a coma and the monsters are all around you, they can control you, they can attack you, and you're, you're not even able to see them. So that's, that's the kind of thing I'm going for. So... What I mean is that the danger of over-conceptualizing the world by sinking into a, a mode of life that is more and more and more uh, um, geared on constant representations instead of actual... I'm talking about the phenomenon where people like feel like they haven't lived something till they've taken a picture of it. Yeah. You know, like, and they have to post on Facebook. It has to become this kind of conceptual thing that they can share before they actually feel like it happened. When you get that feeling, you know that you're living in what I call in that particular essay and specifically in the context of that essay, what I call the digital. It's not a judgment about digital technology or what can happen through digital technology. 
it's the consequence of mistaking the message, the medium for the message. So of not placing the digital in its context, which is a tool within an analog world. <laughs> you know, does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. oddly enough, I was just looking up this Goya image, the sleep of reason produces monsters. And yeah. I was trying to find the original painting. I guess it's a woodcut or something. And I look, I, what I found instead of the original painting was that there were like multiple color references, uh, different, different pieces. And what I found was this, uh, what looks like a photo in an image of a gallery. And I only bring this up because it's sort of evocative. It's, it's, it is literally a weird thing here that the Goya piece that, that we used to, to differentiate between these two epistemological matrices. This image I found is of the three different color paintings that are an attempt to colorize this original black and white illustration. And so like in my attempts to find the original, you know, on Google image search to try and acquire mm -hmm. the original source for this, what I find instead is multiple realist depictions of this originally sort of uh, mm -hmm. mystical, mythical uh, rendering of this guy asleep at a desk and all of these ghoulish forms, bats and, and other night creatures coming up behind him. And instead, yeah. like what I find is the, the double slit experiment that yeah. in attempting to isolate that photon, I instead get this, this superposition of possible paintings. It's like, there's yeah. like three different possible paintings, all of which are actually derivatives, you know, mm -hmm. they're not the original. And so it, it is, it's just this weird sense in, in which, you know, like the, and that's the thing about uh, the reality is digital thing is that, you know, that I'm, I'm curious to know where, where that goes for you, like the wave particle superposition and uh, the harmonics and shells within mm -hmm. an atomic structure. The reality is digital in, in, in the sense that epistemologically, we only have digital access to reality, that the intellect is digital, but the intellect is also part of reality. So we need mm. the discrete in order to have flow. At least we, we can't conceptualize flow. We can only conceptualize discrete slices of flow. So we know that reality is analog, but we can't think of reality as analog. We must think of it as digital. And thought is an important dimension of reality as far as humans are concerned. So it's where I've been going back to Plato, you know, it's like uh, we need to see both things at the same time. We need to be able to look through this double vision, as William Blake called it. Mm. So that, that's what kind of where I'm going with it. It's kind of um, it doesn't really deal with the, the, the hugely complex technical questions of what the digital and the analog are to someone who's actually has a, a real vested interest in that sort of thing, like a, like an engineer or a, or a cognitive, like a, a kind of analytic philosopher, maybe, or I'm using these things as more like symbols than actual mm. concepts. But yeah, I just think that you could read the realities analog essay and come away with a feeling that the intellect is somehow this, um, this false or lesser or inferior thing, but I don't think it is. I think it's essential. It's what we were talking about earlier about the, the, our capacity with the logos to split, to determine what's important in a moment. This has to happen with the intellect. So it's a way to value that. I'm just trying to find what film or what show or what book I'm going to use as a basis for it, like I did with, you know, Stranger Things. So now mm -hmm. I'm kind of letting, in, letting you into the shop here, but like, oh yeah, trying to think of, um, 
of how I'm going to approach the the problem, but I'm looking for a work that's that's representative. I don't know if this really counts, but you know, the end of Total Recall when he's yeah. like, "If that was all a dream, you know, then what is this?" And you get into that. <laughs> don't. I should check that out. Well, just you know, just the you know, you see that that stuff in Phil Dick's work where. Oh yeah. You, you know, it's, it's deeply Gnostic, but then you get into this thing where you're like, well, it ends up being radically non-dual in that when the fourth wall is broken, when the river jumps its banks and you end up with this thing that the fictional character realizes they're a fictional character and then the author realizes he's a fictional character and then you go on to ideally that that the reader ends up being implicated in this, this fictional thing that there's something in that that touches on this, that the intellect is made out of that mystery. Therefore it's no less real exactly. than that. So like, that's, that's, I don't know. That's where I would be looking is, yeah. Is in like scanner darkly or mm-hmm. one of those more accurate Phil Dick. Ubik or Vallis or. Scanner darkly has the, a, a fairly accurate uh, a fidelity in the film representation of it, though. Like if you're looking for okay. the film source, the film version, yeah. yeah whereas yeah, I don't yeah. think I don't think Ubik or Vallis. Oh no, you know Vallis. Well, there's Radio Free Albumu. Yeah, that that has a pretty dope film starring Canadian actress Alanis Morissette. Oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, and it might not be a film. I could go straight for the book too. You know, mm. I don't know. I, I'm still working on it, but I do think that essay needs to be written. And I think that uh, it's a, you know, I wouldn't be both and if I didn't think reality was both. Okay, let me put it this way. I I couldn't really believe that reality was analog if I didn't believe it was also digital. (laughs) So, like, I have to finish the work. Well, between if you have a a line, then that line contains all possible line segments, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, every way that we can divide this undivided fabric. It's there. It's available. Yeah. The vision is part of the real. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think it's probably wise for us to divide our consciousnesses from this phone call. Sounds good. <laughs> it really, was awesome. Yeah, yeah, man. Super, super cool having you again. Folks, you can find this guy's work at reclaimingart.com. And I highly recommend that you go to Metapsychosis and, and read the, uh, the essay on Stranger Things, reality is analog. Anything else you want to point people to in the meantime? Uh, No, that's good for now. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for being on. not done here and we may not ever figure it out we probably won't figure it out